when did Mao's come out? Was it 80? 80... 85. 85. Yeah. Um, it's funny, but just because, because just before Mao's came out, I did what nobody recognizes as a graphic novel. Um, it's called Are We Having Fun Yet? And I believe it was around 130 pages, and it was kind of a, a picaresque um, trip around Zippy's brain. So I, I had just finished that, and then I, I knew Art was, you know, was doing Mouse. Obviously, I'd seen all of the preliminary stuff in Raw and everything. But when Mouse came out, I thought, gee, um, that little stab I took at a long form after years, um, maybe there's another one in me somewhere, or, 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 you know, a quote, more real novel in me somewhere. Of course, the, the next little voice that went off in my head was, are you crazy? You're doing a zippy strip seven days a week. You have all kinds of other responsibilities, creatively and otherwise. And you just finished doing a long piece, which took quite a while. Um, so no, this isn't really the right time. But that thought kind of lodged in my brain when, when or if um, the moment will come <clears throat> where I will um, join Art and the people who came after him um, and do my own graphic novel, um, a real graphic novel. That's, that thought just sort of sat there in the back of my head. I didn't have any kind of uh, idea of what the content of that would be. So nothing um, inspired me to, to go ahead with anything. Then years later, 1998, uh, my mother died and left me her diaries and her 384-page unpublished family saga. So, um, once again, it didn't quite trigger anything. It's that it did trigger um, leaving San Francisco and coming back east. Um, Diane and I <clears throat> bought a house in Connecticut in 1998. And all that material that my mother had given me uh, that I kept, I just put in the basement. I didn't think about any use it might have. I just knew it, it had to be safely stored somewhere. <clears throat> then I was visiting my uncle, her brother, who's still alive and well at the time. He died a few years ago at the age of 94, my uncle Al. In a visit with him in Winston-Salem, where he lived, we were just talking about family stuff, and he asked me if I ever, if he ever thought my mother, who was very flirty all her life with with men, if if my mother ever had an affair with our next door neighbor. Our next door neighbor was Ed Emschweller, a famous science fiction illustrator, and he had a, he had a very kind of macho, kind of swashbuckling persona. I remember. He's very good-looking, tall, had a goatee. My thought was no, because 
that was that was too dangerous for my mother. My mother, if my mother was going to have an affair, it would be it wouldn't be with the neighbor. But I said to my uncle, "Did you ever hear of her affair with Lawrence Larrier?" And he said, "Who Lawrence? Who?" So there, there. That was the trigger for my first graphic novel. <clears throat> um, he was nothing but curious. He wasn't judgmental about it. I remember my aunt, his wife, who was a born-again Christian Southern lady. She was listening to all of this, this conversation. And her reaction was when she heard that my mother had this long affair, she said, good for her. Her marriage was not happy. She sought happiness elsewhere. Good for her. Very surprising from my straight-laced um, born-again aunt. Anyway, so I went home. After that, and I just, I, I Googled Larrier. I knew he was well-known at one time, but not currently. And images flooded, you know, the, the screen. He was prolific in all sorts of ways, all, all in, re in relation to either comics or <clears throat> mystery writing. He authored, I think, 16 uh, mystery novels, a bunch of them. The in, in a bunch of them, the, the protagonist was a cartoonist, and the the location for those novels was New York in the forties and fifties in the cartooning world of that time in New York. And I so I began to read them, and then I looked at all the stuff that was available otherwise, and I thought. I didn't think. It was, there was no thought. I just said, "This is it." I'm, I just started my graphic novel. I, I didn't. I didn't make a decision to do it. It just happened. So that did it. Um, once I finished that, and once it was published, uh, actually before it was published, I missed the creative energy of doing. Of doing it when it was finished. I didn't want to stop doing this kind of thing. <laughs> so I segued almost immediately into the next, um, the next one, the nobody's fool. Um, <clears throat> and <clears throat> then same, same thing after that, <laughs> after nobody's fool was finished before it was published, I started right up on, on the third one. The one that was published just the, the past week, Three Rocks. Uh, I've already, I'm already halfway into a fourth one. So, yes, floodgates is an is an apt description, I guess. Did you figure out a strategy in terms of being able to work on something long form at the same time you're doing a daily strip? The strategy is work seven days a week, which is a famous. It's the, a version of that quote uh, comes from Ernie Bushmiller, too. You know, it's a great profession, you know, as long as you're willing to work seven days a week. Um, yeah, so um, what can I say? Um, it, I find the time, I guess, in my, I, I was just talking to, I have two nieces, and one of them just, just, um, asked me if I thought I was an alcoholic, <laughs> a workaholic. And I said, no, because workaholic is close to the word alcoholic, which means you're addicted to something. 
and it, it's negative. It means it's harmful. So the the word the word workaholic um, doesn't seem to fit me because far from harmful, it it makes me happy. I'm always literally at my my happiest when I'm at the drawing table. Yeah, I haven't had a great um, life outside of comics, maybe, but, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's okay, nothing terrible. I suppose, you know, if, if Diane was still alive, she would have made me take a vacation after I finished uh, Three Rocks, which I never did. Um, of course, the timing of it was absolutely terrible. But... Um, the vacations that I did take over the decades were all instigated by Diane. Um, I have several cartoonist friends uh, who say the same thing, that they would never take a vacation if it wasn't for their their spouse telling them it's time to do it. Um, I guess it's the price you pay for um, making for having the way you make your living be something that you enjoy doing. There are points in my life that I would certainly classify myself as a workaholic and, and all of the negative connotations included therein. Mm -hmm. And, and part of it is the, I have a difficulty being in the moment and letting go and, and, you know, I feel unproductive when I'm not working, which can, can be an unhealthy thing. And I, I can only imagine that that is significantly compounded when, again, you have this product that you have to do seven days a week. I, I try to be um, nice to myself in that regard. Um, you know, if you if you look at Fanographics published, um, what was it, four volumes of Nancy Strips, and I think they're going to do another one. Um, and then there was Brian Walker's Best of Nancy from 1988. If you look at Nancy strips in in their in their continuous run um, that way you'll you'll see which is true for all daily comic strips you'll see that there are peaks and valleys there are great strips there are not so great strips there are strips that are kind of imitating their own other strips that don't seem very inspired when you have to produce uh, 365 strips a year, they're not all going to be great. So I long ago gave myself, you know, the permission to not do a great strip every day. So sometimes a strip, I'll know it's not great. It's okay. The main thing that my requirement is that it, that it's funny. <laughs> and I know that, that might strike some people as odd because they, the people that don't get sippy obviously don't think it's funny. Um, I, I'm very conscious of making it funny. Um, funny for who? For me, obviously. For my friends. Um, for Diane when she was here. Um, that's that's my kind of modus operandi to make something funny happen. If if while making it funny i can do something um with with more layers than i do but i don't need to do that every day so i think that allows me to to 
you know, to continue doing this and to have time to do other stuff. It takes me two to four hours to do a strip, a zippy strip. So if I do one every day, um, that leaves lots of time to do other stuff. It really does. It didn't used to be that way. When I started, it was more of a, you know, more uh, time consuming. Um, the more you do something when you're drawing, um, the easier it becomes to keep doing it. I mean, just in terms of drawing. A lot of things in life, you know, you learn shortcuts and yeah. I can very much relate to that idea of giving yourself permission to not, that not everything that you put out in the world is going to be great. You know, I'm, I write for a living and it, and it took me a while to, to get there and to accept that, you know, when, when we're younger and we've got more hubris and we're ready to take on the world, it can be hard to come to grips with that. It, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to give yourself that permission early on. Yeah. I didn't do it for years. Um, I, it, it brings up another, another, another um, thought, which is, um, When I read the work of of other cartoonists, so so I don't read the I don't read their work from from the inside. I read their work from the outside. I'm not inside their brain. I'm outside, so I don't know how how their work habits are really. Some of them I do. Most of them I don't. And when I do that. I used to be very kind of envious of all the other cartoonists whose work I would read. I would think, boy, I, this, this guy is, you know, draws buildings better than me. Or, or this person has a, a, an accessible kind of humor that I don't have. Or I would feel sort of jealous. And I would, you know, chalk it up to learning and keep going. Um, but there were always two cartoonists whose work gave me nothing but pleasure and whose work never um, turned on my, my critical mind. Those are the work of Robert Crumb and Ernie Bushmiller. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm just being honest. If I sit down to read the comics of other cartoonists besides those two, my critical thoughts will, will start yapping at me. <laughs> And either telling me this guy isn't, isn't as good as you, or you are you are not as good as this guy, and you can learn from this, or you can't learn from this, or those voices that just kind of rattle around in your brain. Um, but when I'm reading anything by Robert or Ernie Bushmiller, um, the endorphins are flowing. I'm just having fun. I assume that to a certain extent, you know what Robert's process is. You know him and and you've discussed these things. Mm -hmm. Ernie Bushmiller being the only other person is funny from the standpoint of, well, obviously now you know his process, and obviously now you've spent a lot of time doing that critique. Yeah, well, it isn't really the process that makes me feel pleasure in reading either of their uh, work. It's it's the work itself. Yes, I know Robert is, uh, is a tortured soul, <laughs> I know, I know all too well what that's all about. And now I know um, Ernie was somebody who was very different from who I thought he was. You know, when I first 
like when I first became, you know, enamored of Nancy, it was probably, I mean, my adult self. Um, that was probably about 1970, 71. And I remember um, <clears throat> when Art Spiegelman, you know, I, I had, I moved to San Francisco in 1970 and Art arrived about a year later. And one of the first things that we would sort of bond over was Nancy. <laughs> we would just read Nancy and laugh and talk about how surreal it was and how it was this kind of distilled essence of comics. And if we gave any thought to Ernie Bushmiller as a person, we thought he was um, sort of like a folk artist, maybe like a naive guy who was doing this great comic strip. Not because he was brilliant, but because he was sort of innocent. And um, I, I kept that thought going even up until late 80s when I read the Brian Walker book, The Best of Nancy, in which there was there was the first biographical sketch of Ernie. Even then, though, it was it, there wasn't enough there for me to feel that I really understood who Ernie was as a person. But then when How to Read Nancy came along by Mark Newgarden and Paul Karasik, with a more extensive bio, I I thought, well, now I really have to look into this. <laughs> I've always thought of doing something with Nancy. And now I know that it would not be just about the strip, but it would it would be about the man as well. It would be a, bi- a biography. Brian introduced me to Ernie's assistant um, during the last 12 years of Ernie's life, Jim Carlson, kind of a neighbor um, in, in uh, Stamford, Connecticut. And <clears throat> Brian introduced me to him. And this was back in at least 10 years ago, maybe more. And I had a conversation with him. And, you know, <laughs> the nature of my graphic novels is the the seeds that get planted take a while to sprout. So, yes, I had a nice long conversation with Jim Carlson in which I got a much fuller picture of who, who Ernie was, but it didn't yet trigger the book. But when um, I started working on the book, of course, then I went right back to Jim, happy, happy that he was still around, not only around, but just just uh, happy to give me these long, long interviews. And, you know, when I did, when I did um, Nobody's Fool, the breakthrough moment for me to understand that who Schlitzie was, was my interview, interviews, um, no, I'm blanking on his name, uh, Wolf Krakowski. When, when I, when I stumbled upon this guy on the internet, he wrote like a one page description of his summer traveling with a circus in Canada when he was 18 and that he was, he kind of became Schlitzie's caretaker during that summer. And he wrote this one page thing. Thank God for Google. I Googled him. I found him in, in Northampton, Massachusetts, you know, an hour and a half from where I live. And he gave me the fully rounded 
picture of who 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 Schlitzie was as as a as a human being. Um, you know, in all his limitations and his handicaps. Jim Carlson did the same thing for me with Ernie. Jim, I once asked at the end of our interviews, I said, Jim, when I've, you know, people ask me who you are, um, you know, once the book is out, how should I describe you? Uh, I, I thought assistant was not quite right. And he said, no, use the term best friend. I was lucky in that the, here's this guy who took on Ernie's um, day-to-day um, duties like, you know, you know, bundling up the week's worth of strips and getting them to the syndicate, handling his um, all his paperwork, his finances. He had a stock portfolio. Jim shopped for them, shopped, brought home um, groceries, brought home booze, just helped them in every way. It, this was, you know, during the last 12 years of Ernie's life. So Ernie was in his um, 70s, uh, late 60s, 70s, and he began to have Parkinson's towards, towards the middle of that time. So Jim could have been just a guy who helped and maybe even got paid, but he, that wasn't who he was. He loved Ernie's work, and they became very close friends. What more could I, a biographer ask <laughs> to have access to that? And Jim wasn't, he didn't sentimentalize Ernie. Very smart guy. He talked about Ernie. Um, he just, he knew that if he, if he fleshed out the details of who Ernie was, that that would, that would suffice. You know, that would be the picture that I needed. And he was, he, he was absolutely right in that. And without him, the book would have been much more superficial. You alluded a little bit earlier to the picture in your head that you had of Ernie early on. How did that evolve over the course of the conversation with Jim? Well, I thought one of the first things I would, I said, I thought to myself, a quick way into someone's, you know, nature would be to ask someone who knew him well, like Jim, what were Ernie's um, likes? What did he like? What kind of comics did he like? What kind of art did he like? What kind of music did he like? And Jim happily told me. And within five minutes, I all previous stereotypes of who Ernie was just fell away. He told me his favorite his favorite artist was Velasquez, Diego Velasquez. That his favorite music was Fats Waller. That his favorite humorist was S.J. Perelman. That he loved Jackie Gleason. The TV, TV version and the movie version of Jackie Gleason. Um, and he collected, this is funny, he collected the work of a lot of cartoonist friends of his, but he never put any of it, he never framed any of it or put any of it or his work ever on the walls. Jim said, 
Ernie kept all of the original art that he owned of all these different cards. By the way, I don't know where this art is right now. He kept all of it in a barrel. So that when you pulled it out, it all had the barrel shape to it. You know, it, it retained that shape of the inside of, of a barrel. That's a thing that a comic strip character would do. Yes, exactly. Because it's, it's a visual pun. It's a sight gag. <clears throat> Ernie's entire life was just building sight gags. That's what he did every day. And yes, he, he made his... Uh, yeah, I mean, here's another sight gag. Ernie, um, this is in my book. All of Ernie's friends around Stanford, of which there were many, many cartoonists. It was kind of this cartoonist enclave, right? From the 40s to the 70s. They all played golf, and they all played golf together. They were a, 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 a club in a way. Ernie hung out with them to some degree. He did go to events, dinners, and things, but he wasn't interested in golf. He did not play golf. But what did he do? He cut a 12-foot swath of trees out of his backyard, about, about 100 feet, and he set up a, um, a tee and hit golf balls through this 12-foot-wide space into the woods as a kind of recreation. <laughs> didn't do it with anybody. Didn't do it. He didn't invite his friends over to do it with him. He just did it. And once again, um, the man whose life was all about sight gags, you know, was, was a living sight gag um, more than, more than, uh, more than occasionally. That's his process, right? His process in a way is identifying you know, you talk about working backwards, but it is, it's figuring out the sight gag and then making the joke around it. Yeah. Although he, he never did a gag about that, about shooting, you know, smashing golf balls into the abyss. Which seems like a thing that Nancy would do, actually. Yeah. You know, I, you know so having said that, I, I have to say, I have not read every Nancy strip. I have just not. I was hoping Fanographics would keep, you know, Keep it up. Uh, and they, I think they're going to start. I think Gary Groth is going to start up again. But yes, for all I know, there were. There was at least a strip reflecting Ernie's um, version of golf. <laughs> Learning that uh, that about him, that part of the process was fascinating. But, you know, in hindsight, it I suppose it makes a lot of sense from the standpoint of you saying the one thing with your own strips that you need to accomplish day to day is for it to be funny. So it makes sense to start with the joke. Yeah. Well, but I, I work at, diametrically opposite of Ernie. I don't know where my joke is going until I, until it happens. I just did because of a whole bunch of um, responsibilities coming up over the next month. I just did 14 strips in the past few days. <laughs> So to get a little bit ahead. And so I'm just fresh off of doing that like just a few hours ago. And um, yeah, when I, when I get to the punchline, I, I'm surprised that I got there myself. It sometimes means I have to go back and make it work a little better because, but because I don't envision the gag at the end. It, it, sort it, it over a period of three or four panels, it 
happens. It grows, it evolves, whatever word you want to use. And um, it's like I'm tapping into the part of my brain that's very much like Zippy. So one thing will trigger another thing, will trigger another thing, will trigger another thing, and then at the end, there's a punchline. That's probably why some people don't get what I do, because they're not willing to go on that little that little journey that I put them on um, of you know serendipity and um, um, chance. And sometimes my strips are just about wordplay. Um, I think of Zippy as having kind of a, he's kind of a, you know, a bebop clarinetist, but he doesn't have a clarinet. He, he uses his, his speech as a musical instrument. And, um, I remember, um, years ago when we were trying to make a, a Zippy animated TV show, um, this is around the year 2000. I was connected to uh, a couple of Seinfeld writers. And one of them gave me some great lessons in, I don't know what, in, in gag writing. Uh, he said, sometimes the delivery is what makes something funny, not, not the actual words. That's very true in sitcoms, TV sitcoms, and in movies, because you've got a human being delivering the words. And that human being, through body language and facial expression, can make whatever they say funny. Like, for instance, the Kramer character in Seinfeld, if you, you just wrote out his lines, they, don't, they wouldn't appear to be funny. Yeah, or Kramer enters the apartment as, as a stage director. Right. Yeah. And he says things sometimes that are um, just surreal or pretentious or unexpected. But the way he says them and the expression on his face and the way the other characters react to it makes you laugh. And, you know, that show was was filmed in front of a live audience. So that laughter was real when you hear that laughter. Um, so this friend, this guy that became a friend, um, his name was Bruce Kirschbaum. Um, he, he was he was one of the Seinfeld writers. He made me even more aware than I was that that every every sentence, every word balloon has a rhythm and a pacing. If you take out one syllable, it's not as good. And if you put in one more syllable, it's not as good. It has just the right amount of syllables, and they fall just at the right uh, amount of emphasis. And so when I do my strips, I always speak them in my head as if they were spoken by an actor. And that's when I know if it's working or not. When I know if I, if I have just the amount, of, the amount of syllables and, I mean, I just did a, a strip where at the end of the the word balloon, very quickly, I real, realized I needed two more syllables. I put them in. Then once they're in, it works. Before that, it didn't work. <clears throat> so this is part of what I do when I do a zippy strip. 
do people read my strip with that in their heads? That kind of, do they get into the rhythm of the speech? I think they do unconsciously because how could you not? I mean, you're asked to, when you do it, when you read a, a simple four row, a four panel strip, you're really just asking someone to, to play out a little, a little sitcom in their head while they read it. That's what I'm after. Um, at the same time, I'm trying to also be funny satirically. So I, I'm trying to, um, <clears throat> without being obvious, I'm trying to make fun of things, make fun of, you know, I'm doing the thing that you're supposed to do as a, as a satirist. You know, you, you punch up, you never punch down. I remember when I, you know, when I teach, I teach, I teach comics at School of Visual Arts and it's a valuable, there's only a few valuable lessons I can give these kids, but that's one of them. When they're 19 years old, they're very happy to, to punch down. And I have to let them know that that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I saw in a few interviews, you discussed effectively two ways that people read Nancy comics. Mm -hmm. If I'm remembering correctly, it was something along the lines of the first one being effectively, you know, the simple joke of it being dumb humor. And the second way, which you ascribe to yourself, is a more zen-like approach. And you also use the word zen mm -hmm. to describe three rocks as a, mm -hmm. I guess, as, mm -hmm. a, as a visual. Mm -hmm. Abstractly, I sort of understand what you mean, but, but I'm curious what it means for a comic to be zen. Well, um... Zen is all, is all about essence and stillness, you know, and um, kind of letting what you see, um, letting, letting the way you see something not be filtered through much to, to, through your perception, but seeing it for what it is. That's hard to do if what you're looking at is beautiful artwork or a story that's full of adventure and fantasy. Because that kind of a story, that kind of comics, wants you to go along for a ride. Um, Nancy doesn't want you to go along for a ride. Nancy wants you to just be quiet and observe. <laughs> just be, you know... In that sense, it's Zen. You know, Zen teaches you to to be with whatever is there at the moment, to be there with it. So, yeah, I mean, just the the way the strip looks, the way everything is so um, carefully orchestrated. It and it for me and other people that share this view, um, it puts you into a sort, of a, a sort of a meditative state. You know, that's all I can say. It just does. Yes, you can read the strip, and then you can see the punchline, which is almost always a sight gag, and you can, you can admire it as, you know, something that it was sort of, it was very carefully crafted, and it worked. It might be very strange and unexpected, 
but it's all it's it's logical in its own logical in its own logic system. Now, this is something I don't think Ernie was ter- terribly conscious of, and when it was brought up with him, his reaction was always, you know, the more the merrier. If you look at Nancy, you know, as a a Zen a comic strip, fine. That that means you Ernie thinks that I have the Zen audience now. It's great. So he didn't he didn't um this is not something he consciously went after. But just by the very nature of the way is the strip is is put together, to me it slows everything way down. It, it slows everything down to the Nancy world pace. I'm not talking about the punchlines anymore here, just the drawing. And it um it asks you to just quietly um observe. Um, it's funny because none, none of this that I'm saying applies to Robert Crumb's work. His work it's, it's all cross-hatching and shading. He does not make Zen comics. He does not make Zen comics. He knows what Zen comics are, but he doesn't make them. Um, he, has, he has Zen moments. If you look at his sketchbooks, there's plenty of Zen moments. But no, he doesn't make Zen comics. Um, so, yeah, it's funny that I should admire these polar opposites. You know, when when Ernie was presented with Zap Comics number one very briefly by his um, helper, Jim Carlson, in probably 1968, he leafed through it quickly and then said, good. One word, good. And then he handed it back to Jim. It was a little bit like... Uh, uh, I, I, I've been told this. I, I had, I did talk to Charles Schultz once about Robert, but what I'm going to say now is nothing. It's not my own personal recollection, but, um, Schultz was, was handed a, a, a crumb comic sometime in the late sixties. And he also said it was good, but he said, I'm not going to talk about the content. <laughs> Probably the same thought went through Ernie said he just didn't say it. He was a Republican, you know, and probably somewhat conservative. Yeah. Although now Ernie's Republicanism <laughs> looks like just, you know, almost like <laughs> like like liberalism compared to the, the insanity of, of Donald Trump, right? Al Cap would have been a Trump guy. Yes, he was because he was mean and bitter. Yeah, he was a mean guy. Ernie was not, didn't have a mean bone in his body. So yeah, his conservatism came from his, his, his past. He and all the people he grew up with, he, he should have been, you know, a, 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 a trolley car conductor or a, a plumber. He wasn't, um, his background didn't produce, um, you know, artists and writers that much. The, the working class Bronx, world that he came from but he and and a number of his friends who survived all that they when they look back on it they they think you know they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps so that's what you got to do in this world and if you don't do it uh, i'm not going to lend you a hand because you have to do it for yourself and it promotes a kind of um i don't know a kind of smugness in a way um 
that might lead to being to being a Republican or a libertarian. Yeah, well, if you don't feel like you have any responsibility for other people, then you can express it politically and feel okay about that. So, but you know, Ernie's politics—they um, were once described. Um, you know, Brian Walker wasn't a friend of Ernie's, but his father was, Mort Walker. And Mort Walker said you could describe Ernie's politics as a William a William Buckley mindset. William Buckley, the author, um, TV show host, um, yeah, um, who who was at least half half a, a libertarian. Yeah, so yeah, so and Ernie's. Ernie's politics never were expressed in any way. I think he was, he was for maybe one year, he was the honorary police chief of Stamford, Connecticut. There are a bunch of little things I didn't put in the book because they just kind of, just too, you know, they didn't fit. But, you know, he, he, he was, I think he was looked upon as most cartoonists who lived in Connecticut at that time as uh, Somewhat that's conservative, conservative politically, um, just because they were they were wealthy, you know, just protecting their own wealth. You have to remember when Ernie died, his you know Nancy was in almost nine hundred newspapers. So I don't know if you know about how the syndicate works in all the syndicates, but the way they work is um, when you begin your career with a comic syndicate, your take is usually half. In other words, when they go out and sell the strip to all the newspapers, whatever they bring in, they give you half and they keep half. Every so often, either every year, every two years, whatever whatever time span, your contract is renewed or not. If it's renewed, you could then require, instead of 50%, you would like 55%. And they would say, well, okay, because... You're doing really well. Okay, when, when Charles Schultz died, his deal with um, um, United Feature, that, that was his syndicate? King or United Features, I would guess. Yeah, his deal was 95-5. He was getting 95% of everything, and the syndicate was getting 5%. We're okay with this because that they were also getting millions and millions in merchandising. Um. Okay, so when Ernie died, he was, in my estimation, earning between ten and fifteen thousand dollars a week. You know, when Schultz was was at his peak, I remember reading once he was in the top five wealthiest people in America. I think Elvis might have been at the top. So this is when, when Elvis was still alive. Schultz was making over $25 million a year out of peanuts when he died. Well, he also licensed the hell out of that thing. He did, yes. And Ernie did too, although, of course, nothing like, like peanuts. But I'm, just, I'm bringing this up because Ernie's, Ernie's wealth was never really expressed much. When he died, he had a huge amount of money. He left to all sorts of charities. He was, even when, when he was alive, he was very open and helpful to all, all, all sorts of relatives and people he knew and organizations. And 
He gave money to the National Cartoonist Society. And what, are, what are you going to do? He does, he's a guy who has no, he, he states it himself. He, he says, I'm not interested. I have no hobbies. What are you going to write about me? So what, hand that guy $15,000 a week. What is he going to spend it on? What is he going to do with it? it it's all, it's, it fills out this picture of Ernie that um, to me was just um, irresistible, you know. Um, so when I started the book, I, I loved Nancy Strip. When I finished the book, I loved the Nancy Strip and Ernie Bushmiller, both. I don't know. Who knows what he would think of? Actually, I know what he would think of this book. He would think, he would, he would say the same thing that he said when he was told that his strip was um, was sort of a cult hit among intellectuals. He would just say, the more the merrier. You know, oh yeah, great. So the Zen audience, I got the Zen audience. I love, I love the Zen audience. He, he in some ways he was a little naive in that way, or or willfully maybe willfully naive. He, he didn't want to think about what Nancy was besides a, a funny strip about a couple of little kids. You know, maybe that's what he had to do. You know, to to keep working. I didn't know that he was aware of the the Zen idea. I, I didn't know that 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 notion had been around for that long. Well, the word Zen was. I have no, I have no evidence that the word Zen was used, but what was used was, starting in the late forties, there was a, a, there was the beginning of an appreciation of comics as an art form, you know, art with a capital A. I, I include the essay that sort of started it all in in my book, the Colton Wa so from nineteen forty seven, I think, called On Comics, in which Nancy is mentioned. Um. But starting then and going um, from then on, there was a small um, kind of cult following of comics that um, that Ernie Ernie became aware of through other people telling him, and his reaction was always um, to to be sort of neutral or pleased but never never to take it in to ne- never to take it in as something to think about or how it would affect him in any way maybe he didn't want it to have any effect on him um, i think if i was in that position that would be what i would do i would want to just say oh good you know that's that's nice but then put it away and not think about it because you don't want it to influence you in some some way that comes from the outside instead of from yourself. So, um, yeah. So, and then, you know, I mean, Ernie was very aware of, um, of Andy Warhol. He was aware of pop art. He was aware that all of a sudden comic book panels were appeared, appearing on, on, you know, Roy Lichtenstein's easel. Um, I have, I have no, um, information about what he might have said, but he was aware of it, and it was all part of a general sort of shift, you know, where comics 
which were once considered to be nothing but children's entertainment, which of course they never were, but that's how people tried to look at them as um, newspaper comics, that they had their day um, and they were ephemeral. You know, they were like the newsprint, the newsprint they were published on. You read them one day and use them, you know, as the bottom of your birdcage the next day. And then the next day after that, you, you threw them away. Um, um, there were no anthologies. There were maybe a handful of, of, of anthologies of comics um, for in those early days that now there's just hundreds of them. So, yeah, Ernie was aware that comics were being gradually thought of as something more than throwaway entertainment. Um, but it didn't, it didn't have any direct effect on what he did. It just did. Yeah. Is Peanut Zen? Is Peanut Zen? Yeah, somewhat. It's quiet and still in that way. Um, I have to say, you know, when Peanuts gets brought up, I'm, I like it, but I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm not a major fan. I I, I like it. I especially like the early years. You can respect the art, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the guy that did them tremendously. I mean, you know, in, in, uh, whenever it was, the early mid eighties, um, Schultz would invite a bunch of cartoonists, including me and Diane to come up to his, skating rink in Santa Rosa for their Christmas pageant. You know, his, his daughter was an Olympic skater. So that was kind of, she kind of organized it, but so we would go up there and he was, he would just be this genial host. You know, he would, we would see him um, before the, uh, the, the show started. And then we would talk later. I remember that's when he told me, um, and who knows why this came up this way, but I mean, he knew who I was. He told me, he, he, I think he told me he liked, he liked my line work. That's what he said. I like your line work. He said, that's high praise from Charles Schultz. Yes. Uh, yes. And I took it like that. Yes. Um, anyway, one of the things he said to me was, you know, when I go, he said, I, I want to make room for another strip on the comics page. So I have it. He didn't say I have it in my contract, but he said, I've told people that um, when I'm gone, that's the end of the, the daily strip. Don't don't keep running it in reruns. Of course, that never happened. It's still there. Um, and I, I can't blame Jeannie, his wife, when she was um, when the syndicate, you know, sometimes sometime after his death. I just imagine the syndicate contacted her and said, by the way, um, is it okay if we keep doing reprints? And if she said anything about stopping them, they would have said to her right away, you realize that if you, if we do stop it, um, all the ancillary licensing, all the merchandising, all that suffers because if it's not in the paper every day, that's a signal to the media that it's dead, it's gone, it's over. And then who wants to buy a Snoopy 
pillow anymore because there's no more comics being reprinted. So, uh, so that's what happened. Na- Nancy also survived Ernie in, I think, one immediate form, which I put in the book, and several other people after that, and is now somewhat popular. I don't know numbers. I know that it's in a, a lot of papers. There's a version of Nancy right now that bears almost no resemblance to the Nancy of Ernie Bushmill. There's a little physical resemblance, but it's in a kind of much looser, sketchier style. And the strips that I've read, they seem to portray a Nancy and Sluggo as teenagers, even though they don't look like teenagers. A lot of social media gags. (laughs) And when I talk to my students, 19 years old, and if any of them have any have ever seen the strip, they they just think it's funny because it resonates with them in some way. It just did the jokes, you know, sound like part of their world. They have no idea that there was something before. They don't know that there was a decades long strip um, with a completely <laughs> different message. They don't know about that. Um, it's funny when I when I ask my kids. Just the simple question, has anybody ever heard of the Nancy comic strip? I get always the first few hands that go up, and I say, so where did you see? And they say, oh, the, we have the T-shirt. The uh, Sluggo is lit T-shirt, probably. Yeah, and and there's, an, there's, a, there's a couple of Nancy T-shirts. A bunch of them are unauthorized. But, you know, the ghost, it shows you the power of those, the visuals of Nancy and Sluggo, that their images have survived beyond the comic strip without any relation or content of the comic strip, just because there's such powerful uh, images. Um, It tells you something about the artwork right there. I would say that Nancy is in better hands with Olivia Jane, Olivia James, than she has been in the past. There were some, well, that's, that's, that's a no brainer. Yes. That's, uh, I mean, Guy Gilchrist, oh my lord. At least hers bears some physical resemblance to Nancy. His was just... No, well, well, then his was all about being a born-again Christian. Country and, music. Uh, oh, and country it was man. about him, basically. It was about him, yeah. Was Diane a big Nancy fan? I would say not big. Her, her, her fandom focused on Little Lulu when she was a kid. And um, I think... I kind of I brought her into the Nancy fold over the years. <laughs> so yes, she was a big fan of Nancy over a period of time. But little Lulu was you know something she loved from childhood and right into adulthood. I mean, they're very different. Little Lulu is it's all about um, uh, sort of adventure and fantasy. You know, Little Lulu doesn't look like an adventure or fantasy strip. It actually looks closer to Nancy than it does to that. But the storyline of, of Little Lulu was always in the kind of the world of, you know, read me a story. You know, like a, a, 
an adult reading a child a story that would capture the child's imagination. And that's what Lulu storylines were all about. Of course, mostly written by the great John Stanley, who did a number of couple of years of Nancy, which I... The comic book form. Yeah, in comic book form. I can't say I like or dislike, but the first thing I think of when I read them is it's just uh, Lulu, little Lulu into Nancy's persona, you know, uh, and, and um, Tubby becomes Sluggo. Um, and the storylines are all about having adventures and things, which Nancy is not about at all. Nancy is always, you know, ba-doom, 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 boom, punchline, you know. So, yeah, no, um, yeah, Diane left little Lulu, you know, always. Um, we have all the big hardcover anthologies, and um, we don't have, we didn't have kids, but we had nieces, two nieces through birth, both, both um, siblings of ours, and they both grew up on little Lulu through us. And to this day, they read Little Lulu to their kids. I don't think Nancy is the kind of comic strip you would read to your children. You know, there's, there was a, a myth that persists to this day that comics, especially newspaper comics, are for kids. It's never been true. There were half a dozen that were. Um, occasionally, there was comics that were strictly for kids. Going, you know, back like, I mean, there was a strip. It wasn't really a strip, but there was a it was a feature in comics called the, the Teeny Weenies, which I used to love as a kid. So it it proposed that there was a world in your backyard of little miniature people, and you know, if a banana peel landed in where they lived, they would have to make something out of the banana peel, some kind of a, a vehicle or a house to live in. Or, and this was strictly for kids, but. I mean, strips that were about kids, like Little Orphan Annie. Little Orphan Annie was like Dickens. It was dense, dense writing. Nothing a kid would ever, you know, maybe look at the pictures. They would never read Little Orphan Annie. And her story is Dickensian, too, when you think about it. Absolutely. Yes, yes, totally. Or, or Gasoline Alley, which is one of my favorite of all times, um, a strip that chronicles the lives of the characters in real time. So from the 1920s to the 1950s, they, they age 30 years. <laughs> Not something a kid would care about. Anyway, Nancy, Nancy was, to some degree, popular with children because it had a funny gag, but um, not as involving as Lulu, I don't think. Although, who knows? I mean, I just never had, I never, um, I never tried Nancy out on my two nieces when they were little. I just figured it was a little, a little too, um, too esoteric for them, but who knows? Jack sent me the book that you did about Diane. Mm -hmm. Did the book just, did it come out of you quickly? Was it? Well, it started to, um, I started doing it, um, about three weeks after Diane died. Um, 
so I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have started it or even thought of it before that because I was just I was completely involved in her, her caregiving. Um, uh, she was she was in home hospice for four months, three months, something like that. When Diane was in, in home hospice, she was in the living room in a hospital bed, and we had nurses and people coming. Um, you know, she had um, her cancer involved no pain, um, which was completely surprising to me, and obviously a gift. But she she was not. She was progressively unable to do much, you know, get up or walk or anything. So I moved my drawing table from the studio, which is in a separate little building right next to my house. I moved it into the living room so that I'd be right there with her in case she needed me in in a moment's notice. So I set it up there and I did my daily, my, my zippy strips there. Um, after she died, what happened was, all of a sudden, all these obituaries appeared. First, the New York Times, completely shocking to me. I had nothing to do with, I, I didn't get interviewed for them. I didn't say, I didn't suggest that any of them happen. But one after another, all these obituaries happened. I realized that having you know, just been with her for all these years over the period of from the 70s till recently that I kind of, we both took it, we took each other's work for granted in a way, you know. Um, we wouldn't talk to each other about how important we were. <laughs> it was not something we gave a lot of thought to unless somebody else said something. I mean, Diane was aware that she was categorized as a feminist cartoonist. She knew there were certain labels that had certain meanings. Um, but it wasn't something that uh, seemed of any paramount importance. But when she was eulogized in these obituaries, I thought I thought I had this outside view of something that was inside before. And I thought, God, Diane was really, she was an important person. She was an important cartoonist. Her work, yes, but but where the work came from, when it happened, how it happened, how it related to women becoming, um, I mean, when I first started teaching comics, like 15 years ago, 12 years ago, the class was evenly divided male and female, which I thought was really great. My class starting next week, twenty. I have 20 kids, that's my maximum, 19 girls and one boy. And over the years, it kept that kept happening. Like the year before, it was three boys. Now it's one boy. I'm actually bringing it up as a problem to the dean of the department. I think... Are boys being frightened away by the girl cartoonist? What's happening here? So anyway, so Diane's, I'm just bringing this up because this whole idea of gender and the fact that, that women. She was a pioneer. 
she was a pioneer. Women, women were not participating in comics um, as much as they they were when she started. And then when she did the book Drawing Power for um, for Abrams, putting together the you know the stories of people's of women's you know sexual harassments and rapes and things over the years, she had she it was easy to fill that book. She had hundreds of female cartoonists to choose from. Hundreds. She had to narrow it down to 60. So when I started to feel kind of this outside view of who she was, I thought I I thought I needed to, to put it into comics in some way that that would become our our collaboration. And I would let her speak in whatever I did through her own drawings, but obviously my writing, or not always my writing. A lot of the things that are that Diane says in my story about her are direct quotes. Even the the line that she used to use on me quite often when I would show her my my work. And my non-zippy work, my my graphic novel work over the years, when I would show her work in progress, sometimes she would read it and she would say, "You know what? You got to put more feeling into this. That what you just showed me was a chronological telling of a bunch of events. I want to go back inside the characters' emotional lives, and I want to know what that was like, even if you don't have any evidence of it." You can imagine it. To this day, I hear her saying that to me. So it started out as, I thought it would be about six pages. I don't know. I just, just you know, a ballpark figure of something like that. And I thought I would just um, simply create it as a uh, a short telling of who she was and why she was important and give her a voice in, in those pages. But it grew and it kept growing until it was 24 pages. You know, people ask me, you know, this kind of standard question about, was it healing for you? you know? No, no. I don't I didn't do it to be healed. I did it because I had to do it. I did it because it was impossible not to do it. I didn't do it to heal and I don't feel healed from it. I don't know what healing is, but I know that it just takes a long time. It certainly can't happen. Maybe maybe my story and this has happened to me a few times. This uh, the story that I did might help other people heal, but not me. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that's not what it was about. Um, I thought it was our it was our last jam, you know, our last collaboration. I remember thinking I've got to make it funny at the end, and I really tortured myself over that. That ending really it came right out of her. Uh, and when I say that she's when I say these this that. that she 
spoke to me while I was doing this. I don't mean I heard voices. I just mean spoke in the um, in the sense that that if you really listen, you will hear things from people that are close to you. They're, they're not speaking them out loud. You just need to listen, and then you'll hear them. So she gave me, it's funny, she gave me the ending punchline, and she also gave me where to, where to you know, there's, there's a thing that you do when, when you write, you know, I'm sure you're aware of this. You, you, you want to... Um, you want to plant your, not every time, but often, you want to plant your punchline, your ending earlier. You want to give it, you want to give the moment when you plant it. And so that when it, when the, when it happens at the end, it's a payoff to that plant. Okay. So the plant in my book about Diane was where, um, she tells me when she was 11 years old, she and her sister would read Mad Magazine. And because it was kind of racy and kind of sexy. And that in one strip, which I had, I researched to look up where it was. Um, there was the line, honey, you sure can mambo, which in the context of the, the mad piece that it was in was meant as a pickup line by the character that spoke it. It didn't mean it had a sexual content. So the, the guy saying to the girl, honey, you sure can mambo, hoping that, you know, she'll then mambo with him. I planted that earlier in the story so that at the end, <laughs> I could I could use it to pay off the ending, where I see Diane drift off on this ghost ferry, um, which, by the way, it's a ferry five minutes from our house. It's a real, a real ferry. And, and, um, she repeats the line at the end, honey, you sure can mambo. That was Diane telling me to do that. You tell the story behind the title. Yeah. It's on the back cover. I, I realize some people would um, scratch their heads. Why is it called The Buildings Are Barking? Um, but if you just <laughs> if you turn it over, I didn't want to say on the cover, hey, turn over the book to the back to see the, you know, just let people. Diane's uh, uh, spoke in her sleep fairly often. And it was almost always intelligible. Most I've I've had a previous a few previous girlfriends way in the past. I, I wouldn't have written down what they said because I couldn't understand what they said when they're sleeping. They're mumbling. Diane would speak very clearly. At one point I think she she woke up not woke up sat up sleeping and said to me why is there a fourth stooge? And then went right back to sleep. So, of course, whenever this, whenever this happened, I would I had a little notebook always at the ready. I would write it down. And when she said the buildings are barking, once again, whenever she said these things, I would think, am I, should I not, I shouldn't wake her up, should I? Maybe I should. Should I ask her what she meant? And while I was thinking that, she would usually stop speaking. But in this case, after she delivered this the buildings are barking line she she yelled va 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 voom and went back to sleep va 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 voom is a is a line from where is it from from the 40s it was maybe it was the tagline of 
it, it meant sexy. It meant you're really sexy. Va 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 boom. It still does. Yeah. Okay. So whenever it, whenever it came from, it was that was she said that and then <laughs> went back to sleep. So I just though I wanted the book to be, I wanted the title to come out of her. So that's what it did. I, I literally got the title verbatim from Diane. She's a cutie, she's a beauty, she's a wow. She's got everything the traffic will allow. Did you ever see a doll who looks so swell? Papa, papa, get me one of those. I yell, She's a cutie, she's a beauty, she's a wow. Ha-ba-ba-ba-boom. Gonna hop a train to sunny Tennessee. Ha-ba-ba-ba-boom. Wanna try that southern hospitality. Southern cooking something I may over.